Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History of Ancient Egypt, Pyramids, Pharaohs, Gods, the Nile. We've got it all on this podcast. We've decided to go a bit bonkers. We decided to go crazy. We are going to do the whole thing. From A to Z, from Dynasty 1 to Dynasty 31. In fact, we're going to go before, we're going to go Dynasty minus 1, and we're going to go beyond 31 as well. So you're going to get the whole thing here. The reason we're doing this, I'll tell you. We just published a book, History Hit Miscellany, available in all good bookshops. The sections on ancient Egypt are the ones that have been most widely shared and fed back on. People out there are fascinated by ancient Egypt. So go and grab the book. It makes a great Christmas present. But in the meantime, here is an episode of the podcast all about ancient Egypt. It's kind of everything you need to know. We decide to pack into one glorious podcast episode the whole history of ancient Egypt. And there's very few people who can do that properly. And one of them is Dr. Campbell Price. He is head of Egypt and Sudan at the Manchester Museum, the most wonderful museum. You've got to go and check it out. And he offered a few months ago to take me on a wild ride through the entire history of ancient Egypt. And I held him to that promise. And here he is. This is the rise, the full rise, full rise and final fall of the pharaonic Egypt. Enjoy. Campbell, great to have you on the podcast. Hi again, Dan. Great to be on. Well, I, the trouble is I'm going to work you hard today because you're so brilliant. I just, I, I've had too many questions every time I meet you and I thought we'd just do a big... <laughs> A big look at the whole thing. Okay. I need to get my... Because we did a podcast the other day on Babylon, and that was interesting. I realized there's such an interest in the pre-classical cultures, the ancient Near East. And I want to situate... I need to get Egypt sorted in my mind mm-hmm. compared to what's going on in the first half crescent. So is the first dynasty important? <laughs> right, what happens before the first dynasty? What's well, going on in Egypt? Well, I think the problem, Dan, is Egyptologists tell ourselves things that make Egyptology seem more important. Oh. So, if we start at the beginning, so Dynasty 1, a major question in Egyptology is, yeah, what relationship does Egypt have with Mesopotamia? Who's, you know, everyone wants to be first with writing or royal imagery or, you know, whatever. Um, The single thing, if you ask most Egyptologists, what is the, the first monumental thing? They would probably say the Narmer palette, which you've seen in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Have I? It is... A sizable, like the size, about almost a metre tall, 
supersized version of a makeup palette where you <laughs> grind pigment to apply to the face. Okay. So this is ostensibly a historical scene where you see the king of the south of Egypt beating up the king of the north right. of Egypt. And so this gives us the myth, the narrative, the historical reality of Egypt being unified. Okay. So we're pretty sure that the Egyptians told themselves this story, but it's really very convenient for an Egyptologist that this image just on its own explains the origin, the genesis of Egyptian civilization. Okay, so you guys can go, there you go, there was a north and a Bam. south, they conquered it, and now we can get into yeah. One, Dynasty One. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, start of Dynasty One. Okay, and so before that, there would have been cultures, societies living up and down the Nile, very yeah. fertile. Well, um, I mean, I think if you visited Egypt 5,000 years ago, because we're talking about the origin of the pharaonic state, I don't like the word state because, you know, we have an idea of a modern state. It wasn't like that. But there is centuries before Narma, we know archaeologically, people are making pots with the same decoration in the north and okay, the delta right. as they are in the south. So there's, so there's a communication yeah. going on. So probably, and you just suggested that they kind of coalesce these groups around the very fertile river um, and the riverbanks and they are doing farming and then small groups become bigger, towns right. become bigger and then people Someone fighting. in charge says, carve up that rock. Yes. Yeah. Or go and fight the town go next door. Or let's do both at the same time. Okay, mm -hmm. and, and what date is that? So this is roughly 3000 BC. Right, 3000 BC. And what's going on in the Fertile Crescent? Sort of. There's something equivalent happening. They use things like there are little motifs which appear on the Narmer palette, you know, floral motifs Ooh, or which images of a griffin, like with intertwining, two griffins with intertwining necks. Which you see in what we now call the Middle East as well. Yeah. Interesting. So, so, you know, an Egyptian, modern Egyptian might say, oh, well, we invented it. And a modern Iraqi might say, but we invented it. And it's uh, the jury's out. The thing about the Narmer palette is Egyptologists have used it to explain a single historic event. And I, I'm deeply sceptical of that. Yeah, because these cultures could have been fighting each other up and down the Nile oh, yeah. and constantly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But we have the Nama palette. Yes. And around that time, mm -hmm. we get Dynasty One. Yes. We? He kicks uh, off Dynasty One, right. pretty much. Who's he? He is Narma, oh, King sorry, Narma. Okay, so, so Narma kicks off Dynasty One. Yeah. So his name means fighting catfish. Okay. So you don't want to mess with them. <laughs> okay. I thought like, I was with you. There was a journey. I was like, fighting cat, cool. Fighting catfish. Yeah. Hmm. Not quite as cool. But because of the survival of that, we kind of, that's why we date Dynasty One. But there could have been other Narmas a little bit further back. Ye okay. Yes. So okay. we begin with the very convenient Dynasty One yeah. and start the counting of the dynasties up to the Ptolemies. Yeah. But then other evidence pops up for people like this guy called Scorpion. Oh, no. So you have to have dynasty like minus one. Yeah, minus zero. Two. Dynasty zero. Okay. So, and dynasty zero is quite a flexible concept. Yeah, that is. So um, it's not Dwayne The Rock Johnson, although that the story of Scorpion did, I think, in some way. Oh, it's by okay. the Hollywood wow. movie. Okay, so, but okay, so, we're going to go with Narma. Yes, Narma. And so he's the person we've chosen in a way. We've yes. perhaps slightly... Um, arbitrarily decided is going to be the founding father of ancient Egypt. Yes. Okay. And to some extent, the ancient Egyptians themselves forget about Narma. And then he and possibly one of his successors, a guy called Hor Aha, yeah. whose name means literally the fighter. A better name. So, you know, we've got a bit yeah. of a we're getting military a sense, sense. We're getting a sense know. of what these guys were about. Yeah. Yeah. These guys coalesce into one kind of mythic figure 
called Menes. And Menes means the founder. Oh, interesting. So, so is it not, just chance that someone so, called the founder yeah. kicks things off? Probably but, but not. we're not a million miles out then by locating the beginning of the pharaonic project yeah. as being at Nama. I mean, yes. maybe a few generations out, but the yeah. Egyptians thought it was about then as well. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so then we get, when do we get pyramids? Because they're early on, aren't they? They're early. And it's funny because when you say, you know, Cleopatra lived closer in time to us than to the pyramids. That is giving you the overall sweep of pharaonic Egypt is a hell of a long time. The pyramids, you're right, are early doors. So the first pyramid is Dynasty 3. So we're only quite early in the numbering. And that's a guy called Djoser. And he, or maybe his putative architect, a guy called Imhotep, who's probably just a high official and not actually an architect sitting with blueprints. Together, they come up with this, the first major stone building in the world, the Step yeah. Pyramid, which has got six massive limestone structures like a wedding cake. And that's it then for about the next thousand years, there is pyramid building. And they only stop building pyramids when there's a sense of it's a massive billboard Rob, yeah, rob me. Please, please rob this. Um, so yeah, so, so Djoser, sometime around 2800, is but, doing pyramids. But when you go to that step pyramid today and you just think, yeah, as you say, it's the first monumental structure on this earth. On the planet. Wild. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So exciting. The thing I like about the step pyramid, if you look at even Second World War reconnaissance pictures, it looks like it's in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And it's not now. It's been cleared. If you visited recently, it's been cleared. So you can visit it and there's a nice pathway and it's part of a whole complex, which was a kind of afterlife palace for oh the king. So people say pyramid and you imagine pointy things in the middle of the desert. Well, A, it's not in the middle of the desert and B, it's not really a pointy thing by that point because they've not developed the smooth sided it's True quite pyramid. lush around there. I remember. Yeah. This, well, perhaps that's more modern, but this canal, there's irrigate. There's just yeah. just on the edge of yeah. The Nile's moved a bit. You yeah. know, the course has fluctuated, but that's an important point. Pyramids and tombs were always meant to be close to fields where offerings were going to come from. You don't want to be in the middle of a desert, not being given bread and beer and wine and onions. Onions. So we get the wonderful step pyramids. Then when do you get the, the straight sided pyramids, the flat ones at Giza? So that's a few generations later, okay. maybe just over a hundred years later. Um, a guy, the the real unsung he- hero of pyramid construction is not King Khufu, who builds the Great Pyramid. It's his dad. So Khufu's dad is called Sneferu, and he is responsible for two, probably three pyramids. So in terms of pyramid volume, he is the biggest pyramid builder in the history of Egypt and indeed the world. So he experiments in a sense. He fills in the sides of a step pyramid that kind of falls a bit to rack and ruin. Uh, but then he tries again with a smooth-sided pyramid. It doesn't quite work. Possibly he's intending it to look like a very squat obelisk. But that's another story. And then he perfects the the true pyramid, what we call the red pyramid. And that looks like something out of a Hollywood movie. Wow. And I mean, just the number of people, the resources that deploy. What's that tell us about what we're now calling the old kingdom? I mean, uh, lots of people? Potentially lots of people. You're right. So we're in the old kingdom, this beginning of this conventional 
division of time by Egyptologists. So the Old Kingdom is, as most of the rest of Pharaonic time, uh, was a land of farmers. So remember, there's the annual flood. So when the Nile burst its banks in the summer, it doesn't happen now because of the Aswan yeah, High Dam. Sadly. Um, but when it burst its banks for a few months, your fields are under water. So a lot of people would be called up ah, in a kind of corvée. Nothing else to do. You've got nothing else to do. Why not come to the Royal Pyramid site, the Royal Building Project, and the king will pay for you. So you'll be looked after. You'll have doctors, you'll have food, you'll have drink, you'll have entertainment, you'll have somewhere to stay, and you can go back and brag to your families about, ah, oh, for a few months I was. Yeah. You know, you've floating built, you've, blocks. You've built a building that would be astonishing even now if it was mm, sure. And we're used to mad people building mad things in Qatar. But like even now, if you built a pyramid, you'd be like, that's kind of that's yeah. amazing. So what would it have been like 5,000 years ago? It, it would be, yeah, it would be worth talking about yeah, for sure. And, and so often, Dan, you know, we look at ancient Egypt through the experience of more recent history, colonialism, our modern ideas of politics and dictatorship, and we think, gosh... Either the kings were splendid, godlike beings, or they were tyrannical, yeah. dreadful pieces of work. And I think that the truth is probably in between. So, you know, if you're a farmer in the south of Egypt and you go up to the building project near what is now Cairo, and you spend a few months a year there, the fact you did it may have been such an honour even just to be involved in the project may have conferred some mm. magical religious you know, afterlife possibilities on you that maybe other people wouldn't get. So, yes, it would be hard work, I'm not denying. Building a pyramid of two and a half million blocks is hard. And we don't really know how they did it, but it was hard work. And I think being part of the team would be fun because we've got the names of some of the gangs. So you have in names like Friends of Khufu or Drunkards of Khufu. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's... There's a... Could be a, a laugh. There's a vibe there. Yeah. I, I know I... I get you in trouble whenever I ask you this, but because when you say you don't exactly know how they built it, that's true, but that does not mean that aliens built it, folks. <laughs> but that just for the audience, like you don't act in terms of engineering and construction, we don't know how they did it, do we? Yeah, for the record, yeah, and no one, no one seriously believes it was alien, um, extraterrestrial life forms. It was Egyptian people working hard, using boats. So I mentioned the oh, flood. You had me at boats. Exactly. So there's a quarry. You can see it from the Giza Plateau. There's a quarry on the other side of the, um, the river on the eastern bank of the Nile. When the flood rises, you take your boat and you right up there at the quarry and then you float it over right up pretty much to the pyramid site. And gosh, not 20 years ago, there was an incredible find made uh, by an Egyptian-French mission on the Red Sea coast of basically the diary of one of the guys that had been floating the blocks. So it's, you know, people think historical discoveries, we're never going to find an account of how they built the pyramids. This was as close as we could get. So a guy called Merer was in charge of getting blocks in this kind of rota up onto the pyramid, probably near the end of construction based on the date of the king's reign. Um, but that gives you an insight into the day-to-day, -day. how do you build a pyramid? You float blocks up, to the site, and you probably use a ramp to yeah. get them up and then, into place. As well, the pyramid, for me, the highlight of the pyramids is actually not the pyramids, but is the ship, is the boat. Oh, the boat. I, mean, I honestly, the boat. I burst into tears when I saw that. It was the ah. most beautiful thing as a boat person. Mm -hmm. um, 
okay, so we've got these pyramids being built. We've got an old kingdom. Geographical extent, are we moving into Libya with the Middle East? Because North Mediterranean, obviously, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to the south, you've got Sudan. Is it yes. stretching up the Nile a bit? So the Egyptians of the old kingdom are, are well aware of um, what they called Nubia. So this area to the south of Egypt, what we would now call southern modern Egypt, the north of modern Sudan. But they have relationships with the peoples to the west, what people we would call Libyans. Um, So later in the Old Kingdom, Dynasty 5, Dynasty 6, you get officials bragging about having gone on trading expeditions. They're not claiming that as an empire. Egypt is Egypt. Egypt is the Nile Valley down to Aswan, basically. Okay. And that's it. And pretty much... That continues for most of Pharaonic history. Really? Okay. Yeah. So when they do mess about into what is now Syria, Palestine, mm. or Libya, it's not a sense like a, a Roman or a British imperial sense of trying to make no. the world Rome. No. Or, okay. It's a foray. It's a they foray. They want stuff. And potentially clientism. Yeah. yeah. And so when you look on a tomb chapel wall in the New Kingdom and you see all these guys bringing, you know, golden rings to the the pharaoh's court it looks a lot like tribute and we use words like viceroy and mm. durbar and yeah. these very british colonial terms actually i think you're right there would be more of a sense of exchange there would be raids there would be going and grabbing stuff because the egyptians in some sense in some ways at sometimes were more powerful but then sometimes the non-egyptians pushed back but you do have this quite useful fact don't you of pretty extreme desert in sinai so to the east mm pretty extreme desert, the western desert, uh, Mediterranean to the north. So there's a protection there, nature's nature's protection. Okay, so we're moving through the pyramid builders. The old kingdom, you say they're building for... How long did you say they're building pyramids? Um, In total, so the Step Pyramid of Djoser is like the book ended by one in the late Middle Kingdom, and between the two of them is about a thousand years. Okay, a thousand as well. Okay, but so the old kingdom, why does the old kingdom come to an end? What's... Um, he's he's rolling his eyes, folks. Okay, in short, in, like, we, we can make it a very short process. Right, there's a, a complex socioeconomic okay, okay. <laughs> reason. Um, basically, the power, which previously, in the time of the pyramids, Dynasty IV, yeah. is with the royal family, pretty much. Power expands, number of officials expand. They take themselves off, it seems, to the regions of Egypt. Mm. And then the central authority of the king weakens somewhat and it doesn't help the last story the last king of the old kingdom proper Pepe II lives to be possibly nearly 100 years old so you know that creates dynastic uncertainty okay so this is actually an example of a a long-lived king causing an instability by the length of his reign yes interesting Mm. and there's what your your, your basic common garden bit of civil war bit of collapse there are definitely factions there's Egypt this is something really important that people often forget Egypt, today in the ancient world, was, and still is, regional. It is like many places, it has a strong set of regional identities. In the record, sometimes the king seems to be Mm, all-powerful. And he is telling everyone in the regions what to do. That situation becomes more transparent, probably, by what we call the first intermediate period, when that power of the, the king, the monarchy in Memphis, near modern Cairo slips. And so the local uh, rulers, the nomarchs, as we call them, which seems rather unfair, uh, the local governors, they take back control, if you like. 
and I hate to do this, but not unlike Chinese history where you get these strong kind of dynastic mm-hmm. periods and then you get these quite radical interregnums and mm-hmm. quite creative, quite destructive, and then something else emerges. Y- yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, something else comes out of that. The interesting thing about the first intermediate period is we have archaeological evidence for some kind of um, change in the conception of the elite. Uh, elites become more kingly. It's not like, you know, day one... We're in the first intermediate period. Everyone change your pottery. Change your crockery. It's not like that. But in later periods in the Middle Kingdom, those Middle Kingdom Egyptians are looking back, casting the so-called first intermediate period as a time of chaos, out of which the great and the just and the enlightened kings of the Middle Kingdom have come. We we saved you from... Yes. So actually, if you're in the intermediate period you might be thinking life's all right yeah i'm having a great old time yes exactly exactly yeah well that's interesting listen to dan snow's history talk about ancient egypt the whole lot of it more coming up hey i'm don wildman and on american history hit my expert guests and i journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the united states From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. How long would that intermediate period be? Um, a couple of hundred years. Yeah, which Not is- long. Well, not long, except well, it's the time between the Battle of Trafalgar and today. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? It's so in the sweep of Egyptian no, pharaonic history. A lot can happen in a couple hundred years, right? True, true. It's amazing. Um, so, 
Does the Middle Kingdom begin with a bang? Is there a founder, a more identifiable founder, who says, don't worry, we're back in the game, here's a Middle Kingdom? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, so the person recognised as the kind of second Narmer, the reunifier, is a guy called Montuhotep Nebhepet Ray. Right. Trips off the tongue. <laughs> it does. Um, and he comes from the south again. So Narmer's a southerner who kind of takes yeah. over the north. So... Um, the hometown of our friend Montuhotep is a little-known place called Thebes. Okay. Modern go. Luxor. And go. that yes. is what absolutely pins that place to the map. And that is now why Luxor is such an incredible open-air museum is because Montuhotep's family, once they conquered the rest of Egypt, essentially, went back to honour their local god, Amun. And is he reaching back to the old kingdom for its symbols, for its language, to boost the dignity of his own pharaonic rule. I think actually Montuhotep II, Nebhepet Ray, is <laughs> actually more radical than that. Okay. He does some kind of weird new things. It's later kings who follow him, who are maybe slightly less sure of their own position, they look back to the past and use Fine. ancient symbols okay. and And they're and still building the old pyramid. And they are still building pyramids. Right. We're not quite sure whether Montuhotep Builds a pyramid himself, possibly, uh, but he's got some very innovative ideas about architecture. Do we know where Montehopet's buried? At Thebes, yes. So he creates a temple tomb structure near, right next to, in fact, although he doesn't realise it, uh, the female pharaoh Hatshepsut's okay. temple. So that's why that area is very sacred, Deir el-Bakhri. Deir el-Bakhri. But we found his, have we? We've not found his body. His body has never been no, found. Of course. But we've found his wives. Oh. And he's got quite a harem going on there. Yeah. Of well, I, well, again, I hate to say harem. He has got a group of elite women who are buried there, yeah. who are priestesses of Hathor, and who are, you know, very significant ladies. It's so interesting when we talk about this, and we said this before to each other. Like, so there's moments of great familiarity with this history because mm. there's moments of ambition and conquest and mm. desire and belief, but then there's moments of complete confusion and obscurity like yes. you, why, what does who, what, what is their relationship with him and with each other and what are they doing that isn't it wonderful because it's nothing, tantalizing it's tantalizing and you've got to remember nothing was written for a modern historian the ancient egyptian yeah they didn't go artisan I, is not writing that text for you or i to say aha this yeah. is the historical reality because historical reality was not <laughs> of course to the people who lived through certain times it was important but recording it didn't obey the rules of the gods yeah. oh okay the gods want perfection and if you want to be perfect for eternity you don't represent things as they are oh interesting like Instagram yes okay, something so, like that so you've got the middle kingdom yes um, do you get a female pharaoh in the middle kingdom you do so um, several very powerful war leaders, I guess you could say. So Egypt's military ambitions expand out of Egypt in Dynasty 12. So we've now got to number 12 in the dynasty counting system. So we're talking maybe 1900 to 1700 BC Okay. by this point. And that finishes with the last great pyramid complex, that of Amenemhat III. And his is based on Djoser's. Okay. Pyramid complex. That's why I say they're bookending yeah. pyramid construction. So after Amenemhat III snuffs it, eventually his daughter becomes Pharaoh. And she is the Pharaoh. She is a woman. Pharaoh regnant. And she is ruling, yeah. not yeah. married to another Pharaoh. She's doing it on her own. Wow. Yeah. Cool. 
And this military ambition, again, it's it's raids? Or it's they, raids. Yeah. It's um, So it's going north, it's going west, it's going um, south. Right. Actually, in Manchester Museum where I uh, work, there's a great account of a chap called Sobek Koo who says he was a soldier under two of these 12th Dynasty kings and he talks about taking hands and he talks about, you know, raiding corpses on the battlefield and being rewarded for it by the king. So there's a real sense of pride. It's not just him. Other soldiers boast about, I was in the following of the king on essentially a raid into the Levant. Is, um, is it in a privileged position? Are they deciding how and when to use violence? Or are there, are there groups coming in from the Levant and raiding the Egyptians? Um, the evidence points towards the Egyptians doing it for themselves. Wow. So that's, um, that's a nice position to be in. You have a kind yeah. of this bastion defended by sea and desert, mm-hmm. and then you occasionally decide you want to leave that space. And Ah, but you mentioned bastions there. That's a good point at which to mention these incredible fortresses. Ooh. And they're building them down towards Nubia, so in the south, towards Sudan. Yeah, because Nubia is the weak, because they can just hop on a boat and come down river, right? So that's, uh, that feels vulnerable. In a sense, but there are cataracts in the river, oh, you know, these massive okay, boulders. Okay. But because of the, the Aswan High Dam uh, being raised uh, in the 1960s, a lot of these sites are flooded yeah. now under Lake Nasser. But the amount of masonry, I say masonry, mud brick architecture yeah. that is lost, that is dissolved ah, like an Alka-Seltzer, yeah. I mean, puts the pyramids to shame. So you get this sense of stone building in the Old Kingdom, but in the Middle Kingdom, those pyramids, the cores of them are made of mud bricks. And then these massive flipping fortresses built to the south, yeah, maybe to just impress the Nubians, yeah. maybe to regulate trade, or maybe because there was a real threat. Yeah, exactly. Where they had to say, okay, we're going to have to keep an eye on the, the Nile traffic. Interesting. And middle runs from, let's just quickly get the oh, dates. You r- said 1900? R- r- 1900, say, uh, to, to 1600, 1650. Okay, so middle, only 300 years or so. Mm, classical age, you know, great works of art, great works of jewellery. No, I'm not demeaning it. <laughs> literature. Um, but yeah, uh, three or so centuries. And what happens at the end of the middles? Well, a bit more decentralization, but then there is an influx of a non-Egyptian group, the Hyksos. Famous Hyksos. And they bring, on balance, it seems likely that they bring horses, which the Egyptians haven't encountered before. Interesting, the old horse. Not the last time it will uh, inflict a catastrophic defeat on a mighty civilization. Mm -hmm. So they're coming from, we think, probably coming from the east Yes, yeah. so up towards what's now uh, modern Turkey. Yeah. So they're they're coming down. They're not controlling all of Egypt. Egypt in pockets has Egyptian governance, but there's a great uh, text where one king is complaining about hearing hippos in the distance, and this is all a, a metaphor for non-Egyptian control okay. of Egypt. So ultimately, this period is called the Second Intermediate Period. And you get the Hyksos there. It's a crucible of conquerors, that kind of Central Asian steppy horse. Mm. You know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because Egypt, of course, is so fertile. It's such great arable land. If Egypt doesn't have a central power to defend mm. itself, maybe people just come along and think, actually, we'd rather graze our herds here, exactly. please, thanks. Why would you not want to be there? So the Hyksos, but then re-establishment of indigenous rule. Yes, and so this is the second reunification 
under another Theban family. So the Thebans are doing it yet again, modern Luxor. A chap called Kamose, uh, his brother, son, male relative, Achmose, they boot out the Hyksos and establish the glorious new kingdom, golden age of ancient Egypt, dynasty 18. And 18, it would be absolute ballers, right? You've got one, like one <laughs> yeah. after the other, yeah. just world class. Yeah, I mean, really some impressive, really impressive warriors, impressive culture champions, impressive uh, god kings. So, Achmose the first. Oh, well, now we think he's Achmose the second because okay. we found another Achmose. Okay, right. But we got Tuthmosis there, haven't we? Yes, the four kings called Tuthmosis. Yeah. And then we got Amenhotep. We got Amenhotep. Mm-hmm. The build. Four of them. Which one's the builder? Well, my favourite Amenhotep is actually Amenhotep II because he is a real kind of playboy prince who becomes a bit of a nasty piece of work yeah. when he's the king. He's got a love of horses, so by this point, the military have absorbed that new technology. So Amenhotep II, we've got a chariot harness finial at Manchester Museum which may have come from his chariot with his name on it. And it says, fear of him is throughout the lands. Mm-mm. So it's one of these kind of threatening statements. He's fi- he boasts about firing arrows from his chariot into a, a copper target. Ooh. So he's a, he's a mean piece of work. And is his son Amenhotep III? No, his um, grandson okay. is he, Amenhotep III. Is yeah. he the one described as the builder? Yeah, he's a big builder. Yeah, he builds a lot, right, yeah. exactly. Colossi of Memnon That's right. are just a fragment of this massive kind of counterpoint to Karnak. So Karnak's on the east, Amenhotep III builds this ginormous uh, mansion of millions of years. One of the most impressive aspects of which was over a thousand stone statues of the goddess Sekhmet. So whether it's Turin, New York, Chatsworth House, if you've seen one of those, it came from that temple. That's cool. Of Amenhotep III. And then you've also got the Hatshepsut in that dynasty. How could we not mention Hatshepsut? So she is the co-ruler, the aunt, the stepmother of Tutmos III. So this is before Amenhotep III. And she rules very successfully as the female pharaoh of Egypt for 20 years. Amazing. And her temple we know about, the Albari, and it's beautiful, and images, again, of these expeditions quite far afield to get precious items and trade goods. And- yeah, I mean, it seems we have this impression, and again, we're looking through a very modern filter at this. It seems that she kind of issues this idea of military conquest for trading, mm. explicit trading with um, Punt, the land of Punt, which may be Horn of Africa Somewhere, area, yeah. Eritrea maybe. And she has this incredible expedition that goes off for years and she doesn't know what's happened to them. You know, there's no live feed coming back about what's happened to this massive trading expedition. They build these ships on the Nile Valley, flat pack them and Mm. take them across the desert, build them again on the Red Sea coast and sail to Punt and bring her back lots of nice fancy things like panther skins and incense trees. Very nice. Yeah. And that's all, and beautifully recorded on the walls of that temple as well. Yes. So her stepson is Tuthmosis. Mm-hmm. The Napoleon of the ancient Napoleon Egypt. Of ancient, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're grimacing there, but <laughs> what's he Napoleonizing? Where is he carving out those conquests? What's he, where's he going? Napoleon is the the third of France. Not the other Okay, way sorry, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but no, it's, it's just a, a, a kind of a lazy um, comparison because I think the third rules a long time. So he comes to the throne, his father dies, 
Tutmos II, that's the husband of Hatshepsut, yeah. female pharaoh, dies when Tutmos III is really young, like a toddler young. Yeah. So that's why and she takes over. She steps in yeah. and, yeah, there's much debate about this. So eventually she disappears from the, the scene, the historical scene, about 20 years later. Then he goes on to rule for another 30 years and he has lots of military expeditions. He builds lots. Um, he makes a mark on his own. But I suspect rather than viewing Hatshepsut as a wicked stepmother, he views her as a role model mm. and her foreign sorties are viewed very positively, actually, by Tutmos III. Well, he'd have been wise to uh, try and use her as an example. Uh, but then we get Arnhazet IV, who is Akhenaten, Indeed. and the whole move to Amarna and changing the religion. <laughs> and that's, I mean, he's I mean, that's just... That's a whole separate thing. Yeah, yeah. Tutankhamun's dad. Tutankhamun's dad, maybe his granddad, but um, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is the, the most unusual episode probably in pharaonic history Akhenaten well changes his name for a start and then says right chaps we're going to move the capital city to a god forsaken part god's forsaken part of Egypt <laughs> middle Egypt and um he just does things very differently he looks very weird he must be quite unpopular because he does like to show himself being surrounded pretty constantly by a military escort so you get the sense that people are not entirely chuffed that he's changed the majority religion. But his revolution experiences a counter-revolution. Tutankhamun comes along and restores the worship of good old Amun, the god of Thebes. So the god of Thebes has been restored. Then we are into the next few dynasties. They've got some Ramesses now, do we, coming into the story? They join the chat. Yes, that's kind of Aravist, um, new kids on the block. Immediately following Tutankhamun, there's an older statesman, there's a general, there's a oh, military general, a guy called Horemheb. Neither of them have any children, so they bring on a chap called Ramesses, and he has a son and a grandson living. So there's a dynasty already in waiting. And so that's Dynasty 19. Ramesses II, wham bam, thank you, Ram, is, uh, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, he's a pretty mega. Egyptian king, rules for 66 years, over 100 children probably. Wow. He's a busy man. He builds lots, lots and lots and lots. And if you go to Egypt today, the royal name, the cartouche and the oval um, shape you will encounter most is that of Usar Matra Setep Enra, Ramesses II. And astonishing temples, Ramesseum, amazing. Mm -hmm. Fighting against... People in the Levant? Yes, right. the, um, the Hittites. He's most well known for the Battle of Kadesh, which he fights when he's fairly young. And he says in his numerous accounts <laughs> of this that he finds himself alone and the other soldiers aren't fighting with him. And he has got to take on the might of this uh, foreign army himself, although he's on foreign land at the time. So there's a real sense of reportage here. You get the sense there was an army scribe recording something yeah. of the military expedition. New Kingdom comes to an end, is it with the Persian invasion? Not so much the Persians, okay. that, that's a little bit later. Um, so Dynasty 19 comes to an end because again, Ramesses had lived a long time. He's succeeded by, eventually, by his 13th son, a guy called Merimptah, who's fairly old when he comes to the throne, you know, a child of a, an older uh, ruler. And the following kings are a bit naff, to be mm. frank. Then along comes a new dynasty, Ramses III. 
he gets involved in some fairly threatening, he's re- repelling, repulsing foreign invasion from Libya, from the Sea Peoples, okay. from various Confederate groups. So he, by some measure, is the last great okay. Egyptian hero king. I think Ramses the third. He's keeping the show on the road. He's keeping the show on the and road. What date is he? He's like the eleven hundreds BC. Yeah, the Greeks unfortunately are really stepping up at this point. Yeah. Troublesome, troublesome. Things are yeah in the Near East, in the Eastern Mediterranean in general, things are getting complicated, and so the new kingdom ends with Egypt internally facing some kind of socio-economic strife. There is a strike, the first recorded strike in human history. The guys who are building the king's tomb down their tools in the reign of Ramses III. He's assassinated huh. by one of his wives who wants to advance the case of her son. And yeah, the new kingdom ends in another decentralized situation in Egypt. So then a few centuries of just sort of decentralization and then the Persians or what? Yeah, the-, the Persians come along. Um, well, there are Libyan kings. Oh, there are Libyan kings then. Who had okay. been settled probably as part of the army, part of a kind of... A mercenary force in the but army taking on the the guise of Egyptian yeah. pharaohs yeah. yes the mantle yeah. of kingship yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is with them the Nubian kings right. for about a century they're very successful actually they have interesting foreign relations and then um, the Assyrians come along and they're pretty nasty they sack Thebes we've got an Assyrian helmet at Manchester Museum where it looks like an Egyptian soldier knocked the helmet off the guy's head and then eventually, yes, the Persians come along and they rule as Dynasty 27. So huh. they style themselves not very convincingly no. as Egyptian kings. You know, Darius, not that bothered about being an Egyptian king. Xerxes, last Persian Egyptian king. Mm-hmm. So is Alexander the Great an Egyptian pharaoh? What dynasties are? Ah, so he kicks out the Persians. The Persians disappear. There's a moment of indigenous rule. Then the Persians come back and Alexander sweeps in and either he's the invader or he's the liberator sure. of Egypt. Yeah. And he is dynasty 31, you could say, before okay. the Ptolemies. Ptolemy, and he sets so up his, the Ptolemies. His, his lead, one of his leading generals, Ptolemy, gets that bit of the empire when it all yes. gets partitioned. And quite successful. I mean, generations yeah. of Ptolemies will rule Egypt. As yeah. Greeks, as Light-skinned Greek rulers. As Macedonian Greeks. Yeah. The, I mean, the family, of course, is Egyptian components. It's, it's it does, ruling, does it? So they, Egypt, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so they're not like a foreign ruling caste. They are to an extent, because okay. remember, they're, they're based in Alexandria. They're not based in Memphis. They're trying okay. to keep the Memphite or the indigenous priesthood on site, which okay. is a job. Yeah. But they are probably speaking Greek and dressing like contemporary Hellenistic Macedonian Greeks. Okay. Yeah. But doing some intermarrying, doing some intermarrying, okay. trying to keep an eye on the the uh, the temples, and it's funny in the in the Ptolemaic period we have more historical accounts for incestuous marriage, infighting, murder, scheming, oh, right. revolts that probably happened before. We just don't know about them because the nature of the record. And it all kind of comes down to Cleopatra who attempts to steer a course through the internal politics of the Roman Empire, Yeah, fails to do so in the end, and, and then Egypt becomes a Roman province. Indeed. I mean, she's a canny politician to an extent, but ultimately, as you say, that game um, is lost, and Battle of Actium, 
she and Mark Antony uh, die and then Octavian sweeps in and Egypt becomes for a few centuries part of the Roman Empire. She stars herself as a pharaoh, so she's the last. The Roman emperors don't take on the symbol, the, the regalia of the pharaohs, do they? Or They they do to an extent on some uh, temples. Okay. The thing about Cleopatra is she styles herself in true pharaonic fashion as a living goddess. Okay. And she follows her Ptolemaic forebears in that. But I just think other than maybe Hadrian... The Roman emperors are not that They're bothered not that about Egypt. Yeah. I mean, Hadrian's an Egyptophile. He, he loves the place. He deifies his oh, boyfriend, Antinous, yeah. and he ships lots of obelisks back to Rome. And that's why more standing obelisks can be found in Rome than in all of Egypt. Wow. And also, I had my greatest ever trip, I've been to the quarry where Hadrian chopped the rock, the great granite quarry for the enormous pillars that are now on outside the Pantheon in Rome. Oh. And you can go to the desert of Egypt and you can see the pillars that have been, oh. they're working on them and they put down tools and left them Abandoned in there. Them. Yeah. Oh, I've not been there. Oh, oh right. great. Let's go. Anyway, thank you. At the end of this conversation, <laughs> I've, I've worked out something where I've been in Egypt where you haven't been. That's a real buzz for me. <laughs> um, thank you so much. How can people, um, well, they should go and visit the Manchester Museum. Absolutely. Just We're reopened. Free. Just reopened. Um, I've been there recently. You have. Um, box office. Hurtling towards a million visitors so cool congratulations yeah thanks all all the hard work's paid off Um, good to see you man thank you thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts it really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.